0: Well, good morning. My name is Rob Pfeiffer, as was shared earlier, and I did bring my family. I have my lovely wife Joanne there. She's the one in the middle, if you weren't sure. All right, on on this side we have Lauren, our youngest. She's going into second grade this year. Wesley on Joanne's left is uh, going into third grade, and Elizabeth is going into fifth grade. So, it's a privilege for us to be here with you this morning. Uh, Jacob and I, if you weren't aware, have been good friends. We went to seminary together at Detroit. We graduated at the same time and uh, we've been good friends and contact often and uh, through some of my darkest and deepest trials, he's been a dear friend, praying for me, encouraging me, listening to me, and helping in many different ways. So. When this came up, I mean, I, I was excited because he was, he was coming to join our church. So I was excited that we could be together and uh, be with him. And maybe he would be the teacher of our Sunday school class and was excited. And then this opportunity came up, but it was a great thrill to be able to stand in for a friend. And uh, we are very like-minded, so I, I believe that's one of the things Jacob uh, was looking for, somebody that would be like-minded to uh, fill in for him until you find that next man. So I'm, I'm very honored and privileged to serve you in that way. So I look forward to, over the next few weeks, getting to know you and uh, will be praying for you and, and already praying for your process that God will guide you. This is an important time. It's a time in which uh, some churches make horrible decisions and cause division, and uh, it can be difficult because sometimes it can be long, but we're praying for you, and we trust God will soon bring you the the next pastor that will just continue doing the good things that are going on here. So, before we begin this morning, uh, I'm going to open us in prayer, and then we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18. Alright, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are gracious, that you are forgiving. And as we just sang about uh, our tendency, even as believers, is to be mean, to be hateful, to, to be rude to others, even in spite of the great debt that you've forgiven in our lives. Help us this morning to look at these very things and think about your graciousness to us how great a debt our sin is and was and yet how graciously wonderfully you forgive to those who come to trust in Christ help us to be encouraged from your word this morning I pray if anyone is here that does not know you does not truly have that forgiveness they come to receive it this morning but help us as believers for those who are to be challenged, to be gracious and forgiving to those you put in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to open with me to Matthew chapter 18. We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 18. Um, And we're going to look at the uh, second half of the chapter this morning. Uh, Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. But before we do that, I wanted to... uh, share a story that I'd heard about that I think illustrates some of the things we'll be talking about this morning. Uh, You may or may not be aware, but Elizabeth Barrett, who became Elizabeth Elizabeth Barrett Browning, um, suffered from an undiagnosed illness in her teen years, and that caused her to have a lot of pain in her head and spine, and the result of this was that she had limited mobility for much of her life. In 1846, she married Robert Browning, But their wedding was held in secret because her father disapproved. Apparently, for some reason, he had forbidden all of his children to marry. And after the wedding, uh, the Brownings sailed for Italy where they lived for the rest of their lives. But even though uh, Elizabeth's parents had disowned her, she didn't give up on their relationship. Almost weekly, she wrote them letters many of which contain her requests, begging for her father's forgiveness. However, not once did he reply. And uh, after ten years of doing this, she received a large box in the mail. Inside, Elizabeth found all of her letters. Not one of them had been opened. She was never reconciled to her father and she never saw Him again. Now certainly this seems like an extreme case, but I think it illustrates well the principle that Jesus lays out for us this morning that we're going to look at in Matthew 18. Many relationships are permanently destroyed because of our unwillingness, our stubborn unwillingness to forgive. In fact, Jesus gives a, what I believe is a very, very severe warning in this passage about those who claim to know Christ and yet are unwilling to forgive the wrongs done to us. A very, very severe warning. So let's look at uh, 21 and 22 this morning as the Apostle Peter sets up the story for us. He asks a question of our Lord in verse 21. And the Lord answers, and then we'll see how he explains this. Verse 21, it says, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brothers sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. So Peter here sets up, The question here that we're going to look at today, how often shall we forgive our brother who sins against us, our brother or our sister? And Peter says up to seven times. Now, we who have been saved and we've read the Bible many times, this may seem like a silly question to us, but in their day, Peter was probably actually being generous. There was rabbinic teaching that said you forgive three times, and the fourth time the person isn't to be forgiven. So Peter maybe thought he was actually being pretty generous. Or there's also a passage in Luke 173 3-4, we won't look there, but if you were to look there, Jesus specifically mentions forgiving your brothers seven times there. So perhaps Peter was being generous, more generous than was common in his day, but perhaps even specifically being responsive to the teaching that Jesus had already given them. But Peter asked this question, is 7 the limit? Can I stop at 7? Is that enough? Right? Essentially what he's getting at. How often do I forgive? And the point that Jesus makes in response here, not 7 times, but 70 times 7, the point is not that you get the 490, and then you can uh, stop keeping track and, and, and stop forgiving. His point is it's limitless. You are to forgive every time you are asked to forgive. If your brother or your sister has sinned against you and they repent, you're to forgive them every time. You are not to be keeping tally and stop forgiving them. And then Jesus is going to tell this story in verses 23 to 35 to illustrate this point. I realize this is probably a familiar story to you, but let's read it together. Matthew 23, verses... 23 to 25, I'm sorry, Matthew 18, 23 to 35. It says, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience on me. I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord, All that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father, will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart alright so this is a familiar story but let's let's uh, work our way through the story and talk about some of the details because it helps inform what I think the main point is and some things that we need to make application to as we look at this this morning so let's look at uh, revealing some of the key elements of the story first of all the main characters Alright, so who are the main characters in the story? So the first main character, well we, well, we have one main character right at the beginning is the king, right? Uh, the king here is a picture of God. It's a picture of God the Father um, calling people to account for their lives. So that, that's, what he's, that's what he's doing here. Uh, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, Right? He also says in verse 35, as we read, my heavenly Father will also do the same. So it's clear the king in the story is a reference to God the Father bringing mankind into account for their lives. That That's the uh, picture here that's used. The king refers to God the Father. All right. So we see here, uh, secondly, the main slave or the first slave that we're uh, introduced to and is kind of the central character in the story um, is really the one that Jesus is making application to so in the specific situation it was Peter and and by extension we could say the other disciples but we should also understand by extended application it's really a warning to anyone who would read this alright so it's a warning to those who profess to know Christ, to those who claim to have been forgiven by God, this this story is really targeted at us. So this first servant here is the key one and is the one Jesus is targeting as the illustration of his point to answer Peter's question. We also have here the second servant. And in the context of uh, believers, we would say this is another believer who's done wrong to uh, the first one uh, much like people do wrong in our lives. Now that, that can be either a believer or an unbeliever, but the idea is it's a fellow human being. It's just someone else in this world who's done wrong to us. That's who this second servant would refer to. And these other servants that happen to observe all these things, it could be other believers or just other people in the world. Even even unbelievers understand don't they we claim to be christians unbelievers understand even if they don't know christ they still tend to understand that we're supposed to be gracious and forgiving people and not rude mean harsh people right they they get that so these other servants would refer to the other people in the world those that observe our lives see our testimony know that we're uh... claiming to belong to christ so what about the main elements here i think one of the most important ones to understand is this concept of debt now in america today uh... debt is handled pretty loosely it's pretty, pretty it's no big deal you I, I see signs all over where i live you can drive by and you see bankruptcy four hundred ninety nine dollars which always cracks me up if you're bankrupt how are you gonna pay the four hundred ninety nine dollars right but the point is you can get a lawyer, $499, have bankruptcy taken care of, just wipe out all your debts, gone, boom. In America, we don't tend to take the debt seriously as many other countries do, and certainly was true in this day. I mean, in, in this example, this story, which would have been characteristic of their day, if somebody had a lifetime worth of debt, that meant they were gonna be a slave to pay it off. They, they had to give themselves. So the debt here is a significant part of the story but I think it's important to understand what it's referring to. The debt is referring to wrongs that we've done to someone. So understanding the king representing God the Father, that means the debt that servant has to the king is the wrong we've done to God. And the Debt that is between the servants would be wrong done to each other. Alright, that's important to understand. The debts refer to wrongs that we've done to someone else. Now also, we are introduced to the concept of being released from this debt. And this is an illustration of Forgiveness. But it's important to understand some key things about forgiveness. Again, I think this is a common thing that's easy to misunderstand in our day. Forgiveness means that we let something go. We're not bringing it back up. It's not that it never happened. It did happen. It was a legitimate wrong done. But it means we're going to let it go. We're going to forgive that. We're going to move on And we're not going to continue to bring that up. So in the context of our relationship with God, if you know Christ and you've been forgiven of your sins, He's not at the judgment seat going to bring up your sin and ask you to be accountable for that sin. You've had that sin forgiven. It's been let go. Our relationship with God as we're a believer is based on forgiveness. We are made new. We're a new creature, a new creation in Christ in the context of human relationships that means when somebody wrongs us and we forgive them we leave that in the past. So uh, without trying to embarrass anyone that's in the room here uh, and I'm sure many of you parents have experienced the same things but there's there's been multiple occasions in my house when uh, I'll come home and one of the younger people in my household Uh, remind me or tell me about something that another young person in the household did to them earlier that day, right? You know what I'm talking about? You've experienced that too? Uh, There was one particular case I remember where this happened that one child brought up the wrong another one had done, and the person who had done the wrong protested and said, you already forgave me for that. And that led to a great conversation with the one that brought it up. Forgiveness means you've moved past it. You're letting the matter go. You're not going to continue to bring it up. That's forgiveness. So, it's important to understand as we look at this. Um, Also, a more difficult question is the subject of torturers. Uh, I believe Pastor Jacob probably taught in this passage. I did not Happen to get his message to see what he told you this is. But there are, I think, two potential understandings of what this torturers refers to and what the state of our main servant that we're talking about is. So, one, it could be that our main servant is a true believer and that this difficulty at the end just means... God is going to bring misery to those who are Christians who refuse to forgive. And he would do that in the sense of the language Scripture uses about the grieving of the Spirit or conviction that he might bring in your life or there'll be an absence or a lack of joy in your life or different trials and hardships to try and expose this to you. But it would seem that the intent, if God's doing that, and that's what it's about, is to lead you to repent and forgive. the other option is that this refers to these tormentors here is a reference to the ultimate and eternal punishment of hell now there's some difficulties you have with either position you take and I'm gonna leave you in suspense for the moment alright I promise to address it at the end because it's important I think to understand the applications but there are challenges to each view. If this refers to the ultimate and eternal punishment of hell, um, it's, it's significant for the application versus the other way. But clearly, the point, the main point is true either way. If we know Christ, we've been forgiven a huge debt, and we are obligated to forgive our brothers and sisters, those who do wrong to us. So, Alright, we've covered some of the main elements of the story. Let's now review the sequence of the story, alright? So let's review the details. So look with me, we're gonna look again at 23 and 24, and I want you to see the scene, uh, scene one here, which actually goes to 27, but we're gonna start with 23 and 24, which is the debt collection, alright? So 23 and 24, it says, for this reason, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. So we see here the debt collection happening. This is the accounting. The king is collecting debts owed to him. He's settling accounts with his slaves. And notice that this uh, servant we see here owes a staggering sum of money. Now, admittedly, there's different different opinions on exactly how much money this is, okay? So I'm going to give you an example that I read. I don't want you to get caught up in all the details. Um, I think the point is the same either way, but I'll just walk you through an example of what I read. One denarii, which is, uh, a denarii is referenced uh, later in the story and is used multiple times in the New Testament, is basically one day's worth of wages, all right? One of the sources I read said, That 6,000 denarii equals one talent. So if you do the math on that, if denarii refers to one day of wages, therefore one talent would roughly equal 15 to 20 years of work. One talent would be an incredible amount of debt. But this servant didn't have one talent. This servant had 10,000 talents. So that would mean roughly 15 to 20 thousand years of work. An impossible debt to pay for anyone who isn't someone like Bill Gates right? Who has all the money. Alright, the point is this was the debt that was so significant it could not possibly be paid back. That's the point. And that is a powerful picture of our relationship to God and the wrongs that we have done to Him as sinners. Such an incredible debt. We also see verse 25, the decree. What does the king say here? He says, uh, he commands that since he does not have the means to repay, he commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children, all that he had, and repayment to be made. So we have here the slave being ordered uh, to be sold, and including also his family. Very dramatic outcome here. But look at uh, the desperation, verse 26. We see that the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. So the servant falls down begging, and he's asking for patience. In other words, I, it, it seems that he's saying, Give me more time. Have patience with me. And he says, I will repay you everything. He promises to repay everything. We also see the deliverance here. Verse 27, it says, "...and the Lord of that slave felt compassion, and He released him forgave the debt." So we have the king here having compassion. He's moved by this man's plea and, and his situation, knowing there's no way he can pay it. So he releases him of the debt. He forgives him of the debt. All right, so as we close scene one, a couple things I want to draw your attention to. Number one, we need to get the magnitude of this debt. That is a key part of the story. The magnitude of the debt is significant because it is a powerful picture of the sin of mankind. Our sins against God are so numerous and so egregious that we've offended the holy, perfect, eternal God. And there is nothing we can do to pay that back. This totally destroys any concept of us thinking we can earn our way to heaven. It's impossible. Our debts are beyond our ability to pay. So, it's significant to understand the, gra- the, the magnitude of the debt here. It is a helpful analogy to see that we cannot pay. But it's also important to understand here the king's forgiveness of this debt. Notice what an incredibly large debt the king lets go. And he freely forgives it without any requirements. There's no, okay, fine, but you're going to pay me so much over so much time. Nothing like that. This is an amazing picture of the grace of God and the forgiveness of sin. He is forgiving us for our mountain of offense against Him. It is a wonderful picture of the graciousness of our God in forgiving sin. So, scene one closes. We have some important details we see there. But then scene two comes along where we have the first servant... And the second servant. So we see, first of all, the recovering of a debt. Look with me at verse 28. Verse 28. The first servant says, That slave went out, and he found one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him, and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So a couple things to note there. We talked about a denarii. It's about a day's wages. A hundred, therefore, is a hundred days wages. So that's not an insignificant amount of money, right? It is significant. And I think this illustrates that the wrongs we do to one another are meaningful. They are significant. They are a debt. It is wrong to treat each other inappropriately, all right? But when you compare that debt to the debt the first servant owed to the king. It's nothing. It's nothing in comparison. And that is an important point about this story, is to see that difference. That difference is so key to understanding how we should handle such things. But notice the first servant's methods of reconciliation. Right? What, What does he do? How does he handle the matter? Does he say... Uh, hey, you owe me hundred denarii, by the way. You know, when, when can you get that to me? And, you know I could really use that. What's his attitude? What's his approach? Even from the beginning, we see um, the slave's uh, approach in it is different. He seizes him, it says. It says he begins to choke him. He's choking him. And he says, pay back what you owe. He is going to get that money, and he's going to get it now. But notice, this, this is amazing. The second servant says in verse 29, So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. Do you notice that that's the exact same words that the first servant used? The exact same. So it's, what's the logical outcome that should happen? the logical outcome would be, oh yeah, I just said the same thing and I was forgiven a whole bunch. I should forgive this guy. But that's not what happens. We see in verse 30, a stubborn refusal. He says, It says, but he was unwilling and he went and threw him into prison until after he should pay back what was owed. So in contrast to the king, this servant had no compassion. In contrast to the king, this servant was unwilling to forgive. In contrast, this servant throws him into prison instead of releasing him. So, how is this servant acting? Obviously, he's doing the complete opposite of what the king did and how the king handled things. And this is my question towards... uh, Towards answering that question, whether this refers to somebody who really is a believer and God's just going to treat them miserably because they won't forgive, or whether this is a reflection of somebody who's not a believer, ultimately as demonstrated by their unwillingness to forgive. To me, he's acting like he's never been forgiven of that debt and he's trying to pay it back. He's not accepting the original forgiveness offered. That's, that's my take. His motives are not explained here, but his actions seemed uh, to indicate he's trying to get his money back so he can pay the king back and he's desperate. Um, and we're supposed to be angered by his actions when reading this or hearing this, like the other servants around him was. I mean, it's interesting. This first, this first slave who was for, let go of that debt, he's holding this over a fellow slave. They're equals. As opposed to it was the slave's offense against the king. Someone who was supposed to be revered and respected, and yet wasn't, and uh, was, that relationship was abused. Uh, and yet, these are just two equals. So we have a very different response here. And the other thing that's kind of interesting about this debt is though 100 days' worth of wages is significant, it was actually reasonable to expect that to be paid back. It was actually doable. Whereas the first servant really had no possibility of paying it back. Um, Verses 31 to 35, we see scene 3. We see the observation uh, by the other... uh, so, oh, I'm sorry. With 31, we see the conclusion of this section here. Um, so when his, uh, the observation 31-32. When, when his fellow slaves saw what happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that happened. So these other servants, those around, happened to see all this happen, and they knew he had been forgiven of a huge debt, and yet he was treating his fellow slave like this. There was outrage. They knew this wasn't right. So they reported it to the king and the king is outraged verse 32 to 34. It says then summoning him his lord said to him you wicked slave I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me you should not also have ha- should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you and his lord moved with anger handed him over to the tormentors until he should repay all that was owed. So we see, first here, the king reprimands him. He calls him, you wicked slave. He also reminds him, I forgave you all because you pleaded with me. And then rebuked him, saying, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow human being? And then we see the outcome here. The Lord acts with anger. Verse 34, it says, his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So, given the size of his debt, I think this means forever. He was never going to get out of that because he would never be able to pay it back. And the overall lesson Jesus summarizes there in verse 35, saying, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So, how do we resolve the question here? Um, What does torturers refer to? Is this person in the story ultimately lost or saved? Does this refer to God making believers miserable if we won't forgive? Or does this warn us that an unforgiving person, someone who stubbornly refuses to forgive, is actually revealing about themselves that they are not in Christ? And I, though though good people may disagree, I understand the second to be what he's teaching here. Someone who is truly a believer and has been forgiven this mammoth debt and the Spirit of God is at work in our lives cannot ultimately stubbornly refuse to forgive people for wrongs done to them. If we are stubbornly unwilling to forgive, that would ultimately be a warning, a sign that we've never truly come to know and understand and have the grace of God in our lives. Because if you're a child of God, you've been forgiven an immense debt. Now, that doesn't mean we'll never struggle. But if someone is unable and unwilling to forgive people who wrong them, it's a warning. This is a warning that that person may never have truly come to know the grace of God so I would just give you quickly a few supports for that that view number one I pointed out to you on purpose on verse in verse 26 how does the servant start the whole thing the servant starts it by saying have patience with me and I will repay I think that's a key part of understanding this isn't really someone who comes to know the grace of God because he thinks he can repay it. It's not possible. Our debt to God is so great, there's no way we could repay it. It is only God himself who is infinite through the Son of God suffering on the cross for us that our sins could be paid for. God himself paid our debt. So it's not that the debt is never taken care of. It's taken care of through Christ. God punished the Son. The Son, the innocent Son of God, became man, lived a perfect life so that He didn't have a debt to the Father. He died and He rose again. He died in our place to pay for our sins. And God makes it so that through faith, through trusting in Christ, we can be forgiven of our sins because of the work of Christ. It is not something that we can repay. And I think this first servant illustrates never accepting the grace of God because he, does, he thinks that he can repay it. Um, uh, it's also a problem if you understand the tormentors to mean the payment of hell because that would seem to indicate someone can lose their salvation. And we know clearly from many scriptures that's not the case. If you are truly saved, if you are truly forgiven, you are in Christ. You're joined with Him. And that won't be undone. If you're truly forgiven of your sin by God, you will enjoy fellowship with God for eternity. But I think this is a very severe warning that Jesus is giving here. That if we are absolutely unwilling to forgive, it may indicate that we have never truly received the grace of God. Because it's illogical that we could be given, forgiven such a grand debt that we would hold such a small thing over other people. Now, as we said, these are real debts. So the Scripture does recognize wrongs done to us are meaningful. It is something. It is significant. There is pain to it. This does not try to tell us that we'll never be hurt by people that wrong us. We will. There is a genuine pain. There is a genuine hurt. There is a genuine difficulty when somebody does wrong to us. But the warning is, ultimately, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you ought to be able, by the grace of God, to find it in your heart to genuinely forgive those who repent of their sin and ask for your forgiveness. Without limits. So, in summary, just a few reminders of things we've talked about. All of us owe a huge debt to God because of our sin. And none of us are able to pay it because of the size. But as we've said, God Himself gave His Son to be that payment for our sins so that uh, we could be forgiven. So there is justice. God does deal with wrongs. But He dealt with His Son so that we could be forgiven because of His work. And our responsibility and response is to trust in Jesus Christ, to believe in Him, to receive Him as our Lord and Savior. And if God has forgiven us at such a great cost, it is very, very wrong of us if we're unwilling to forgive others. So, a few, a few thoughts here for you. Again, reminding you about Forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean there's not a wrong done, but it means it's dealt with the right way and it emphasizes that we're having grace and we're no longer going to bring it up. So, men, if your wife asks you for forgiveness because she was in a bad mood yesterday and was not speaking kindly to you and she repents of that and she asks you to forgive her and let it go, you shouldn't bring that up later and remind her about that bad day she had. You forgive it, you let it go. That's the idea of forgiveness. You let it go. Ephesians four thirty-two says we are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. See, God's forgiveness is our standard. We need to forgive other believers. The mark of a repentant life is kindness and tender-hearted, forgiving as Christ has forgiven us. But this passage is a very severe warning for those who may misunderstand grace. Maybe those who are trying to earn their way to heaven or minimizing how bad sin is. Sin is so serious and it is going to be punished, but it is beyond our ability to pay it. And this passage is a very severe warning that if we cannot find it in our hearts to forgive those who have wronged us, it may be an indication there's a problem in our heart and our relationship with God. Those who are forgiven will forgive. Again, it doesn't mean it won't be a struggle at times, but ultimately, we will by the grace of God, learn to forgive. And if not, that's a very very serious warning. I heard this illustration that I thought was helpful. John Piper, I think it's a pastor that you're familiar with, he's written several books, I think in the past i would seen books here from John Piper, he used this illustration, he said, forgiveness in the Christian life is supposed to be like a conduit, as opposed to a cul-de-sac. You know, a conduit is something goes through it. it, doesn't block the path, it enables the path. A cul-de-sac, however, in a subdivision is like one of those circle areas that there's no way out, right? It's an end in itself. For a believer, forgiveness should be conduit. We should be a conduit for forgiveness to other people. God has forgiven us. That should operate and work in our lives such that we easily forgive those who have done wrong to us. We should not be a, cu- a cul-de-sac holding in, trying to relish that forgiveness for ourselves, but giving it to no one else. It's very, very wrong. And it's contrary to God's plan. So, in conclusion, God forgives a, a debt when we come to Christ greater than we can ever pay. And genuine repentance means we realize we don't, first want to seek justice for people we want to seek forgiveness now there are matters of law and we need to follow matters of law and there are consequences for wrongs done according to the law but in personal relationships we should be praying for people we should desire to see them repent now that can also be a difficulty maybe they don't ask for forgiveness right away does that mean we are enabled, we are allowed to just be harsh and nasty to them because they've never repented, they've never asked for our forgiveness. Well, again, how, how would Christ respond? How did Christ respond? God is gracious to sinners. We should be gracious and we should extend forgiveness. Uh, D.A. Carson, I thought it was interesting. You sang uh, our last song today. It was about being ashamed, um, uh, when we've been wrong in our attitude, being hateful. D.A. Carson, a well-known pastor and prolific Christian writer, wrote this statement. He said, There is no forgiveness for the one who does not forgive. How could it be otherwise? His unforgiving spirit bears strong witness to the fact that he has never repented. And as an as illustration to uh, finish up, I had read a quote about uh, Robert E. Lee who was a leader in the Civil War. There's reportedly a story where he visited a lady in Kentucky. And uh, this lady took him to the remains of a grand old tree in front of her house. There she bitterly cried that its limbs and trunk had been destroyed by the federal artillery fire. She looked to Lee for a word condemning the North, or at least sympathizing with her loss, But after a brief silence, Lee said, Cut it down, my dear madam, and forget it. It is better to forgive the injustices of the past than to allow them to remain and bitterness take root and poison the rest of your life. I believe our Lord's warning is very similar here. We, as Christians, need to forgive each other. And we need to also forgive the unsaved around us as well. If we are completely unwilling to forgive, that may be an indication we have not truly received the grace of God. And that is a very scary position to be in. So we must forgive. Not seven times, but as many times as wrong is done to us, we need to forgive and let it go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that you are so incredibly gracious to us. Father, it burdens my heart to even try to talk about these things because I know I'm not doing an adequate job to describe the greatness of your goodness, your, your willingness to forgive our sin. It's unparalleled. Father, thank you that you are so incredibly gracious and help us, please, to be overwhelmed by that so that these debts, these wrongs that others do to us will, will seem properly in our eyes so small that we will have no trouble forgiving them because of what you've forgiven us and we know that's much greater. Help us, Father, to have grace. If, if there is anyone hearing this who is deceived, who's trying to earn their way to heaven or thinks they're your child but doesn't really know you, I pray that you'd expose that and help them to see that, that they would come to know you and come to know your wonderful grace. Help us to strive today and every day to forgive like you forgive. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.